Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to It's Rainmaking Time. This is Kim Greenhouse. It gives me great pleasure to welcome Robert Rockaway. He is the author of The Jews of Detroit, Words of the Uprooted, The Jews Can't Defeat Me, The Anti-Jewish Case of Louis Farrakhan, and The Nation of Islam. And But he was good to his mother, which we will be speaking about today. When I was watching the History Channel one night, I saw Robert Rockaway interviewed about Jewish mobsters. I wanted to actually do an inquiry and find out, is this for real? Did this actually exist? And much to my surprise, there is a lot of factual information about Jewish mobster culture. The author, Robert Rockaway, has a lot of experience He has been a professor emeritus at the Department of Jewish History at Tel Aviv University. He's written for many newspapers for 40 years, and he has a lot to teach us regarding the Jewish people. Today, we're going to focus on what appears to me as an anomaly, but apparently after reading the book, it does exist. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome from Israel, Robert Rockaway to its rainmaking time. Good evening to you, sir. How are you? (laughs) I'm good. You know, at first, I have to tell you, I had a little bit of uh, concern to do a show on this topic because we don't really get into politics. We cover discoveries and breakthroughs, both modern and ancient. We focus a lot on solutions. Mostly, this show is dedicated to a great love of learning. And there's a lot of times that books are not written about real facts and things that happen to peoples around the world, both ancient and modern. So my love of learning had me interested in this. And when I told people I'm doing a piece on this, they said, you got to be kidding. You're asking the question, is there a Jewish mafia? But I didn't know that they existed, that there was a history here. But what I loved about the title of the book, but he was good to his mother, is because it's so Jewish. It's such a <laughs> Jewish title. It's so Yiddish. The guy could kill X number of people, run this industry, be into the laundry business, stolen diamonds, machine guns, bookies, bootleggers, racketeering. But he was good to his mother. It's such a Jewish cultural motif. And it's at the core of a lot of things. But it is an anomaly, isn't it? Well, you know, first of all, let me mention where the title came from, and it answers your question. Uh, for many, many years, there was censorship in the Jewish community, and there, there were reasons for it. There was anti-Semitism in the 20s with Henry Ford, the passing of immigration laws, which restricted uh, Jewish immigration from Eastern Europe and had a tremendous impact in the 30s when they were desperate to get out of Germany and other places. Then in the 1930s, you had Father Kovlin, and you had the Nazi Bund and all these other groups. Jews were terrified of of portraying anything bad about their history. They always had to be better and nice and good, nice Jewish boys and doctors, lawyers, Indian chiefs and everything. And many years ago, I read an article that was written, and it said, you know, there's a censorship. We had these people. We had Lepke Bukhalter. We had Ben Siegel. We had Longies Willman. We had uh, these. Why aren't they written about? And uh, because there's a censorship and fear in the community about exposing any of this because of the fear of anti-Semitism. Well, I read that article, and it was back in the 70s, and I said, yeah, yeah, that's right. And so I said, look, I'm living in Israel, so what are they going to do? They're going to come over here and get me? So I started researching it, and I had some help. Some uh, A gentleman helped me meet old-time Jewish mobsters, 
And uh, it was then in their late 80s and early 90s when I interviewed them. Some of them had been killers and, and had been in the Bugs Meyer mob and other kinds of things, and also FBI files that I, I got into and all kinds of other things. And when I started working on it, I came across information about some, for example, the title, where uh, my family, my grandfather, peddled with the father of three killers who had been in Detroit's Purple Gang. And I was talking to my mother about this. This is back way back when, about 30 years ago or so. And I was talking to her about it. I said, you know, so-and-so, he was a sleazy guy. He was a... And she listened to me, and then her comment was, well, that may be true, but you know he was always good to his mother. <laughs> so I said, Mom, you just gave me the title to the book. So I wrote, you know, but he was good to his mother, colon, the lives and crimes of Jewish gangsters. And what I tried to do in the book was to portray them as they were the connection with the family, the community, and all kinds of other things, to be as factual as possible, but to do it in, a, in an entertaining way in the sense of not to glorify them, but some of the things that, uh, you know, that whole era and everything, it's, there, there's, a, there's, very, there's a lot of humor in it. I mean, these guys were characters. I taped them. It's unbelievable. And uh, so that was one of the things I did. But what you say is true. I, res I got a lot of flack and asked, was asked in a nice way over the year, please, please don't do this. It's going to create anti-Semitism, and Israel's always having trouble, and it'll be bad for the Jews, and this and that. And, and uh, you know, in a, in a sense, you feel, as a, as a Jew, I said, what do I want to do this for? On the other hand, it was so fascinating, and it's part of our history. Jews also controlled crime in Eastern Europe, in, in Ludge, in Poland, and in Warsaw, and in Krakow, and other places. And they were involved all kinds of things, in Germany, in Holland, wherever they were. They were an underclass, and if you have to make a living, you do what you have to do. And there were dictionaries of, uh, in German of underworld slang, and a lot of the words are in Yiddish. Now, where did the Germans weren't speaking Yiddish? Where did these little slang words for gangster, gangster terms end up in, in, in underworld slang? Because there were many Jews in England and other places in the underclass. And so it's not something that didn't exist. And someone, we had a conference here a few years ago, and uh, they asked me to talk, and I talked about the U.S., and one of the speakers was a professor from uh, Ben-Gurion University in the Negev, and he came up to me and he said, I just want to tell you something. Because of what you went through in your work, you opened the field that others can investigate this phenomena. And he was doing working on Eastern Europe, he said, without having to you know, suffer the, what you went through. And it was really, it was hard. I mean, I was attacked in print and everything else. And, and I'm basically really a nice guy. <laughs> But, you know, you don't want to bring uh, um, bad things against the Jews. But, you know, over the years, there have been movies. There's, uh, you know, Bugsy, and then there's uh, Billy Bathgate, and uh, Miller's Crossing, and, uh, and Lepke. All kinds of movies have come out, Once Upon a Time in America, and all this stuff. So now it's just part of folklore, and that's, what, that's what's happened. But, you know, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, 50 years ago, Jews were terrified about anything that would portray them in a bad light. And this doesn't portray them in a good light, but they existed. They controlled crime in Detroit in the 20s and 30s, in Minneapolis, Minnesota in the 20s and 30s, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania in the 20s and 30s. These are Jewish syndicates, Jewish gangs. You know, Minneapolis, uh, Minnesota, as I said, and also uh, Newark, New Jersey. The state was controlled practically by a man who was called uh, the Al Capone of New Jersey. He was a Jew, Abner Longies Wilman, Longie. The Yiddish word was the Langer because he was six feet four inches tall. And he ran the show there. And uh, his girlfriend was uh, famous actress Jean Harlow. He's the guy that co uh, coined the term platinum blonde. 
for her. And then she, when she went out to California and got, she was, she was in the movies already. And then, uh, you know, they, they kind of broke, broke up. They didn't, uh, but I mean, there's all kinds of things and, and it's just part of our history. And, and, you know, to ignore it is to distort Jewish history. You know, I know every ethnic group and racial group wants to portray only the good people. True. But uh, there's also the other side of the coin. The same thing with Israel. For years, it was always about kibbutzim and, you know, singing and dancing at night and working in the fields during the day. And if you read the newspapers today or anything like that, we've got all kinds of uh, problems. And we, have, we don't have nice people all the time in the government and things. I mean, this is just, we're human beings like others. And, and we, have, we have a glorious history in many, many places and in many areas, whether it's science and, and uh, it's medicine and it's art and, and philosophy and music and everything, but there's also another side to the story. And so uh, people ask, why did you get into this? I said, well, you know, as an academic, you you have to write, so it might, have been, might as well be something you're interested in. And I became interested in this out of curiosity, and it's fascinating. I mean, I've also written other things, but this is something that... Uh, I have to tell you the truth. I really enjoyed it. I had these, these old-time <laughs> gangsters on tape, and, and if you listen to them, you'll just roll on the floor. It's unbelievable. And when I would come to interview them, they would be sitting around a table, and, and then they'd start talking. <laughs> guys, the, the professor from Israel is here. Shut up. Shut up, you guys. The professor <laughs> this kind of stuff. And, I mean, it was just uh, fascinating. Were you scared to talk to them? No, it was like going to a, a retirement home or an old-age home. They're waiting for someone to talk to someone has come and is interested in their lives. And, you know, it's like when I would visit my uh, late grandfather who became ill and need 24-hour care, so he was in one of these retirement places. And when I would go there, I would visit him all the time when I was still in school at, at, uh, in Michigan, University of Michigan. I would drive into Detroit and see him all the time and go to shul with him and everything. But I would also visit the grandparents of friends of mine who were there as well. And they were so happy to have someone to talk to. The loneliness of being an elderly person and waiting for someone to visit with you, you know, and talk to you and be interested in your life. To me, it's fascinating because they all had interesting lives, and I love talking to them. And uh, so, you know, it's it's just uh, I wasn't afraid at all. I mean, uh, it was it was fun. I mean, <laughs> you know, nobody pulled a gun on me or a knife on me. <laughs> I mean, you know, although I'll tell you a fast story. I interviewed one man, and he had a bodyguard. And the man that I interviewed, he was, I won't even mention his name, was late 80s. And then he walked away. He could hardly walk. And he walked away from me. And he had been a killer in his youth. He stopped, and he turned around, and he came back to me, and I was standing up. And then he started poking me in the chest with his finger. Listen, kid. I mean, then I was, uh, I was in my 40s. <laughs> Listen, kid. He says, if anybody gives you a tough time, you tell me, and I'll take care of them. And I didn't want to burst out laughing. Here he could barely walk, but after talking to me, it projected him back 50 years in time when he was this young thug. The word was starker, you know, um, you know, muscle man, you know, and when he was not afraid of anything. And he was going to, if anybody gave me a tough time, this guy was going to go and, and, you know, take care of it for me. So, no, it, it was not frightening at all. And as a matter of fact, I always looked forward to it because the stories that they told me you could not find anywhere. And I always double-checked everything. I mean, wherever I could with sources. And a lot of the things that uh, they told me and things in, in certain ways, I found later on in FBI files. So kind of, not that the FBI files are, you know, the Torah from Sinai and all that stuff, but, uh, 
you know, I got I got corroboration wherever I could. Wherever I could not, when they told me intimate things like Polly Adler, the famous the Jewish madame who wrote a book, and then there's a movie about her, you know, a house is not a home kind of thing. Uh, they told me stories about her and the Jewish, you know, the gangsters that would call up and, and ask for women to be sent over to such and such a hotel. Things. Well, who knows about that? I mean, they didn't publish it in newspapers and things, but... So I put those kinds of stories in my book with quotations around it, and I cited them at the end. And uh, I, I wrote it the way they told me, and they used colorful language. <laughs> so, yes, there were Jewish criminals, and there were a lot of them. There also Jews were very heavily involved in the uh, international prostitution trade. Yiddish-speaking women brought to many places like Istanbul, Constantinople then, and uh, in, in uh, North Africa and South America and other places, and Jews were involved. And I didn't want to write about this, but uh, Arnold Rothstein and, and some of the others brought, bringing over uh, heroin and cocaine from Hong Kong and other places heavily involved in that. Jews did everything. It wasn't just white-collar crime. It's not Bernard Madoff and all these other people. They did bad, bad things. I mean, they uh, everything they you know they did all of it, whether it's extortion and uh, contract killing, uh, drugs, you know, robbery, whatever, kidnapping. They did it all. I want to make the distinction that you make in the book and the things that you notice culturally between the Italian families and the Jewish mm-hmm. families in the mobster paradigm. There were differences, okay. and one of them you yes. talked about was that. The Jewish mobster absolutely did not want the children to inherit that line of work. Is that correct? They didn't pass it on. That's right. And they did not bring them into the business. Their business, quote-unquote, that's what they called it, was separate from their family life. I did not interview one person or ever read about anybody, any of these gangsters, that brought their their relatives, their sons, grandchildren, whatever, into the business. They did not. The Italians did. That's why you have what they call Italian families, the families. Their cousins, their relatives, gods, they make it, the, you know, the godsons, and they bring over people in the family from Sicily. They keep it in the family. Jews never saw it. With them, it was one generational. That doesn't mean there haven't been Jewish criminals after that period, but these people did not bring their their children into the business. Meyer Lansky's sons were not in the business. One of his sons graduated West Point. And when I spoke to him, he was very proud of his son. He told me about it. He said, did you know my son graduated West Point? I said, no, I didn't know that. You know? And others as well. And uh, I had so much evidence for the fact that they tried everything to keep them out of it and to divorce them from this. Uh, even willing to go to jail. As uh, You heard of, uh, well, he's famous, uh, Annenberg. Yes. Uh, um, yeah. Okay. Talk about his that. Talk was, about that, though. Right, Share that. Yeah. And his, and his father was involved with Capone and others in the newspaper. They caught him, and he he was sent to jail, and uh, he had to pay a huge fine. Then and then it was the largest fine ever paid, a couple of million dollars, for income tax evasion. And uh, Moses Annenberg was his name, and uh, his son later on became you know, um, you know, extremely extremely wealthy, uh, you know, TV guide and all that stuff. And one of the the deals that he made with the government is they he would confessed everything and go to jail on the condition that they did not, you know, prosecute his son. He said, my son was not involved. I do not want him, you know, uh, in, in, in any way connected with this. And they agreed. And he went to jail and he got cancer, unfortunately, and he died. But uh, that, was, that was very typical of it. Um, but, and the children suffered because of their father. 
what he was doing. They knew. I mean, they were not stupid because people talked. It was in newspapers. But their children, it's very interesting, the third generation, they think it's the greatest thing. I, I've had students who tell me stories about their grandmother being a prostitute, and their American students have come to Israel, and I get, you know, they come up to me and they tell me all these neat little stories, and, and or their grandfather being in such and such a mob. To them, it's folklore. The second, you know, there's an expression they use in history. The third generation wants to remember what the second generation wants, wanted to forget. <laughs> And for the third generation, it's folklore, it's history, it's way back when, you know. Um, but uh, So for them, it's fascinating, it's folklore. But the second generation were embarrassed, they were humiliated. When I interviewed these old-time mobsters, I said, are you sorry for what you did? I've got them on tape saying, none of them said they were sorry for what they did, but all of them said that they were sorry that it caused shame to their family that it, it humiliated the family. They, that doesn't mean they got out of it because of the family. But the thing that, that they really were you know, ashamed about or upset about or, or, or sad about was that it impacted on the family despite all their efforts to keep them out of it. They're not sorry for what they did, but they are sorry that what they did ended up shaming the family and humiliating them in the Jewish community and all this kind of stuff. Many of them changed their names and... You know, and, and uh, they even had to change names in the book where people told me very secret kind of things about the family and then they implored me. I could use the material, but please not use the name. So I would change names. And, and the people who knew these individuals and the gangs they were in would, you know, and would, would write me or call me and say, well, so-and-so, where'd you get that name from? They weren't in the gang. And then I'd say, well, you know, the name was changed from something. So you have that element, the shame very much awareness of shame. There was no pride in it. Uh, the gang, I, I, nothing against Italians, but there was certain kind of status. Look at John Gotti and these people, you know? I mean, the Teflon Don, you know, and he dressed up, and he was all... Jews didn't do that. Uh, some did then, but the ones who survived the longest were the ones who did not draw attention to themselves, like Meyer Lansky or Modalitz and even Longies Wilman. Uh, and, and some of the others that they, uh, you know, they knew that if you draw attention to yourself, you're going to, you're going to jeopardize your business venture. How did these guys, these mobsters protect their families though? Because eventually people do find out you have children, you have wives, etc. How did they provide for their security? How did they protect? Well, them? yeah, they said they're businessmen. And then the family gets shocked when they're arrested, like Lepke Buchalter and, and uh, some of these others, and go to jail. Uh, Jake Guzik, who's Al Capone's treasurer, you know, his, uh, and uh, his, his grand, uh, grandchildren and his children and all this, got, got letters that they wrote to each other when he was in prison. Of course, they were censored by the prison authorities. You know, he reminded them to say Kaddish, the memorial prayer for, you know, the prayer for the dead. Yes. Uh, when it's the time, you know, all this kind of stuff. Um, they did whatever they could, and they, they always, and they, even when they're interviewed in newspapers, they're saying, hey, blah, 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 businessman, businessman, businessman. And, and you say, well, how, are you serious? They didn't know. They didn't, you know, psychologically, if you don't want to believe something, you don't believe something. No, he's a businessman. He's not a crook. Oh, come on, you know, that's typical FBI. That's typical, you know, anti-Semitism, you know, that they, they hate us. They're looking for a reason just to, you know, attack the Jews. No, he's not a businessman. Uh, yeah, and then later on, you know, there's a famous gangster, Waxy Gordon. Uh, 
Uh, that wasn't his real name. It was a Nam de Wexler is his last real name. And they called him Waxy because he was a great pickpocket as a young man. You know, his fingers were like wax. He would just be able to, well, you know, he was arrested and thrown in jail and stuff, paid a huge fine and all this kind of stuff. And he was married to the uh, daughter of an Orthodox rabbi. She didn't know what he was doing. Had a son in medical school and all kinds of stuff. And then when he went to jail, everything hit the fan. And, and when they would interview them, you know, uh, and they they really said, I didn't know he was a businessman. I didn't know what he did. You know, So, you know, it's very hard to say, are they lying? Are they covering up? Are they trying to protect their children, the wives, and, you know, saying they didn't know? Did they know? Didn't they know? You know, it's, it's very hard. I mean, they're all gone now. I can't, I tried to interview some of the wives um, who were alive uh, for some of the, and they refused. I did manage to get to some like the children and things who did talk to me and some of the relatives who did. But uh, the wives of a number of people who were alive when I started doing the research, and I knew, and they knew that I knew who they were, uh, didn't want to talk to me, even though I had friends who, you know, one of my friends was a you know, late friend, was a pediatrician for the grandchildren of the, the uh, wife of a mobster, a very famous mobster. And he said, look, he just wants to talk to you about what kind of father... You know, he'd, excuse me, she was the daughter of this monster. He just wants to find out what kind of father. She refused to talk to me. You know, to, they didn't, and I understand that. To, to resurrect this and to expose themselves and the family to this, they didn't want to, even though everybody knew who she was. I'm sure there's fear, too. They fear don't need a big it, element, right? Of course. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, of course. And, and the fear of what, what it would mean for the family. I mean, there were uh, instances, and I know about this, that the daughters of gangsters were uh, not, a, you know, the schools that they applied to didn't want to take them because the father was a gangster. So they ended up hating the father because of what he was that prevented them from following the kind of career going to the school they wanted to. And so you have that happening. So there was, yeah, there is fear. Uh, fear in the community. And I have enough you know, editorials in the Yiddish newspapers that talk about it. The English language newspapers did not, the Jewish newspapers written in English didn't even write about it. One, I came across one editorial in Philadelphia in 1928 in, in the Jewish news, the English Jewish newspaper there, where the rabbi had given a, lect, uh, a talk in the synagogue on Saturday attacking these mobsters because there was a 1928, there was a grand jury that came out with a report and Turns out Jews controlled crime in the city, bribed police, all kinds of stuff. And the rabbi said, you know, that these men are, are dragging the Jewish name and the filth and the dirt and the blood of murder and corruption. And should any outcry break out against the Jews, these men will be responsible for the terror and what will happen to the anti-Semitism and everything. That's the only time I ever came across anything written in English about it because it was published in the, uh, you know, his sermon uh, coming out, out, and they published the sermon because already the the grand jury report had come out in the general press, and it was not a secret anymore. And it was a Jewish syndicate that was running the show. In uh, Max Hoff was running uh, prohibition and other kinds of things in Philadelphia, and it was a Jewish uh, it was a Jewish syndicate, an all Jewish mob. I mean, they worked with others, but basically the Jews worked with Jews. You obviously did deep level and broad level mining in this area. Right. What is the overriding theme, in your view now, that led these Jewish men to become gangsters? Okay. 
you know, it's very Talmudic when they say you answer a question by posing a question. I expected such interested. an answer. They didn't finish school. <laughs> yeah, they didn't finish school. None of them, practically none of them finished high school. A few did. Even a few finished college. Uh, the Killer and Murder Incorporated, the Tannenbaum, his parents owned the uh, hotels in the Catskills, and he, he was a you know, graduate of college, but he, he found it more exciting to be a hitman than he did, <laughs> you know, doing getting into the business. Most of them, the overwhelming number of them, even the, you know, did not finish school, okay? Didn't finish high school. They didn't want to work in a shop or a factory. I mean, it's boring. It's tedium. You're never going to make any money. But you want the good life. You want beautiful women. You want fancy cars. You want beautiful clothes. You want nice homes. You want to be able to travel. You want kind of recognition of some kind. You want a certain amount of power. How do you get it? If you're uneducated, if you're not interested in, in going to school, if you're not interested in, in working in a store, in a shop, working your way up, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, how do you get that, quote-unquote, good life? How do you get the money? Same way you do today. You get involved in crime. And if, in those days, like even today, too, if you're willing to, you have to realize you're going to have to use violence. You have to expect to get violence, and you've got to be prepared to use violence. Mickey Cohn said it, a gun is like a carpenter, you know, it's part of the trade, you know, and this kind of thing. And so they were willing to do it because, for at least for their short lives, and most of them did not live full lives, few did, Meyer Lansky in his 80s, Mo Dalitz in his 80s, some of the others lived the longer because they got out of it and used their bootlegging uh, gains, the prohibition money gains, to go legitimate and things like that. Some stayed in it, and uh, they didn't live long. They lived into their 40s, maybe their 50s, and that either they were killed or whatever, or went to jail for their you know rest of their lives, etc. How do you get the good life if you're not interested in doing it the legitimate way? I want to share with you the theme that I picked up from the examples that you gave. It seemed to be, in a lot of these examples, there was also financial suffering or poverty watching their mothers struggle or something happened in the family where they were almost into a kind of forced poverty or forced yeah. horrible financial situation where the sons made some decision that they were going to get out of it no matter what. By the way, I'm not saying this to justify anything, but it felt like a theme in that book. Yeah, well, many of them, numbers of them came from middle-class families where they didn't have that, working-class families, but lots of them, who got into crime came from poverty. I mean, that doesn't necessarily mean that there wasn't some money in the family. Fathers were working, but many of the fathers never made a living. You know, there's a reason they loved their mothers. They all loved their mothers. But a lot of them had issues with their fathers. The fathers never made a living. They were immigrants. How much can an immigrant make? It's not like the, the moguls in Hollywood who on their own, these immigrants, you know, created uh, the movie industry. Well, they didn't create it, but they certainly dominated it and stuff. Many of them, you know, the fathers just didn't make a living, and they were poor. And so many of them told me, I swore that I would not be poor, that I would give, quote-unquote, my mother everything she ever wanted. And so, you know, and they, so the first thing they did was bought a home for the mother. You know, give her, gave her everything she, because of, you know, what she went, the Yiddish Mama thing, you know. So they loved that song, my Yiddish Mama. They would weep and wail when they heard the Sophie Tucker sing this thing. Um, and, and that was part of it. Uh, poverty is a great motivator. But some people, you know, that grew up with them didn't go into crime and got out of poverty in other ways, whether it was business or, or whatever. Uh, and others went the cro what they call the crooked ladder to success, uh, crime. But poverty is a great motivator. 
not having money and, and wanting to support your family or giving them the things that they did without when you were a child. It's, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's a great motivating factor, and a lot of them had that. So, Why would the young guys who came from, let's say, a middle-class family, why did yeah. they get into it? I think that would be very interesting to profile. Why? What led them into why? it? Well, huh. I spoke to a number of them, and then I read enough about some of these. Excitement, much more exciting than running a movie, a movie theater like uh, Charlie Solomon in Boston. Uh, they called him the king because the Jews had a king, Solomon, King Solomon. So they called him Charlie the King Solomon, ran the rackets in Boston and, and in New England for a number of years till he was killed in the bathroom of a restaurant. But uh, uh, his family owned movie theaters. Uh, you know, and, and other kinds of things. Why the heck did he, he didn't have to. I mean, the family was, we'll say, middle class and moving into upper middle class. He could have gone into the business. A lot of them did it because it was more exciting. There's a notion of, you know, getting involved in it. But, yeah, I mean, that's part of it, too, the attraction. The, the movies tended to glorify that until they were killed. You know, you're on top of the world. Everybody's afraid of you. You walk down the street and the streets part. The, the, you know, the people walking in the opposite direction, they part. It's like the Red Sea parting when you walk by. You're <laughs> recognized. You're known, you know. And what does that do? It's an aphrodisiac. Where, where do they get these beautiful women? How come they always had these beautiful women going out with them? What is it about mobsters that attracted these women? starlets and, and other people. What is it about them? I mean, these guys were killers and everything else, and then you always see them with these beautiful women. Well, what is it? You know, what are they? What attracts them to this? It's power, and it's, you know, this, that, and money. You know, whatever. So, um, that's part of it. You know, poverty, too, but a lot of people who, lot, not that many, but the ones that grew up in middle-class homes and didn't certainly didn't have to do that, could go to school if they wanted to, like Lepke Bookhalter, his one brother was a dentist, another brother was a rabbi, a sister was principal of a Jewish school in Denver. I mean, they all did that, and they said, we'll put you through school, put you... No, he wasn't interested. He was already in jail at 15. He just wasn't interested. They were going to put him through school. Go to school. Well, you know, we'll do this, we'll do... Wasn't interested. Why? He found that other life more attractive. I mean, you know, why do people follow a certain profession uh, and, and not others? And part of it was that... They saw that kind of a life as exciting in a way, you know, so that, that, that attracted them as well. So <laughs> There's a lot of things that were pretty shocking in the book. I want to go back to the laundry business. What is this about the laundry business that was such a big to-do? Well, you know, in Detroit especially, they called the cleaners and dryers war. Uh, you know, Jews were involved. Uh, Jews were involved in a lot of things. I mean, legit, legitimate things. And then uh, how do you get competition? You have competition. Now, how do you eliminate competition? Well, what happens is uh, both sides uh, invited, quote-unquote, thugs, muscle men, to blow up the opposition's uh, store or shop. And so one blew up, and then the other guy uh, blew, had that, someone blow up his business. So you had that happening. You had it in New York, where the employers hired mobsters to, against the strikers, strike breakers. So the strike, the unions, the Jewish unions then hired Jewish gangsters and others to fight against the gangsters that the employers were hired. So the Jewish community said, oh my God, what is going on here? Jews are fighting Jews and there's gangsters that both sides are hiring. In other words, the methods used by one side uh, started to be used by the other side. So they got involved in these, uh, these wars where they blew up each other's uh, businesses. 
know, and there was an expression they used to use if they blow up a business or have a burn down the business to collect the insurance. And they used to call it Jewish lightning because it became a way for Jews when the neighborhood changed, if they had a restaurant there or something, and Jews stopped coming because the neighborhood maybe turned black or whatever it was, and they were afraid to go to the restaurant. So the man was losing business and not making any money, So he and he had insurance. He'd have someone torch the business, and then he'd collect the insurance and then open a restaurant in the Jewish area or something like that. Well, this happened a lot in different places, and so he got the nickname, oh, yeah, he had a fire in his place. It's Jew- it was caused by Jewish lightning. And so you had uh, you had that. So that's what it was. They, especially in Detroit, the cleaners and dryers war because they uh, both sides were hiring thugs and mobsters to blow up the opposition. You know, one way of limi- limiting the op- or, or eliminating the op- uh, the competition is to kill the competition. The other I way mean, is to buy you know, it. I mean, let's be honest. That's uh, you know, you eliminate the guy, the man, or the business, and uh, that's it. It's the, the field is yours. And so it went on until finally, uh, you know, the police. Generally, the police many times stayed out of it. You know, they talk about the, the Capone gang in, in Chicago, that there were, during his era, you know, there were uh, 1,700 uh, murders, gangland murders. And, and how many were solved? Thirteen. You know, because the police had looked at killing each other. Bugsy Siegel said it. Ben Siegel said it. Uh, he said, we only kill each other. You know? Right. I wrote his, that his down, slogan. actually. Yeah. I wrote that yeah, down. And his slogan was, live fast, die young, and have a good-looking corpse. Well, he lived fast, he died young, but he didn't look that good. He had a couple, he had a bullet uh, that knocked one of his eyes out and all this kind of stuff. So, you know, it just, uh, but it's fascinating in the sense that it's another part of, of uh, the Jewish experience. I mean, I don't glorify it. I don't think that that's the only thing. I mean, there were all these other things. If you look at the history of the Jews in the United States, I mean, you know that, and the music and, and medicine and Nobel Prize winners. I mean, since World War II, 40, over 40% of all the Nobel Prize winners in science and medicine, economics rather, in science, have been Jewish. And the Jews make up less than 2% of the American population today. So there is there is a certain kind of Jewish genius or ability or motivation or and you know, I, but this is part of it. And although it doesn't exist, there are still Jewish criminals we know. But it's not like it was. They don't control crime in the cities the way they did during Prohibition. Uh, they were prominent. They were the most prominent element at the, for a period of time, more so than the Italians. But then uh, they got out of it. It didn't continue. Where with the Italians, it did continue, as we know. Um, and so, and then you have others that are involved in, in you know, especially the drug business and stuff like that. What is your take on the percentage of effectiveness now of the Italian mafia? It's not as effective as it used to be. I mean, I'm not into it, really, to be honest. I'm not a criminologist, and I really don't deal with that. All I do is I read about things like that. But there are so many other groups, ethnic groups involved, whether they be Colombians or Mexicans or uh, whatever, uh, who are involved in the drug business and other things. It's very difficult for the Italians to exercise the kind of control that they did you know, 50 years ago, 40 years ago. You think it's because of globalization? It's globalized, and also you have all kinds of ethnic groups that use crime as a way of, you know, also moving up the ladder. So it's totally, it's a different situation uh, than it was. They're competing with others. I mean, there's industries that they may control, and, and we still read about periodically people are killed here and there and others, but all kinds of other people are, uh, you know, other other ethnic groups or elements are involved in, in it as well. So it's not the dominance that it used to be. I'll give you a fast example. Up until 1939, Jews were very heavily involved in the drug traffic. 
bringing drugs to the United States and controlling the distribution. Now, their sources were Hong Kong, and they had uh, connections in Europe. Well, what happened in 1939? World War II broke out, September 1st, 1939. The Japanese gained control in east of Hong Kong. Uh, the Germans start wiping out Jews. They killed good Jews, and they also killed the bad Jews in Europe. So the connection in Europe is cut. The connection with Hong Kong is cut. Now, who is the ally of Germany in 1939? World War II breaks out. Italy. So the Italians then had the field to themselves. And so the Jews were no longer heavily involved in that because those in Europe were killed. Hong Kong was no longer uh, a British in British possession and stuff. It was occupied by the Japanese who were allied to the Germans, who were allied to the Italians. And so the Jewish connection in the uh, international drug uh, dealing business was pretty much cut, and it became dominated by the Italians. And it continued that way because uh, they, for a while, and then other ethnic groups got involved in it, and uh, drugs were brought from other places, from Latin America and this and that. You know what's going on in, in Mexico today, for God's sakes. The drug cartels are killing each other. Running, they're running cities and countries, and the murder rate is astronomical there. The government can't even control it anymore. So you have all these different elements. But the Jews were involved, but the war took care of that. Also, the war took care of Jewish involvement in international prostitution. Because they killed all these, you know, the Germans were killing all the Jews, the nice Jews, the great Jews, the brilliant Jews, and the criminal Jews. They just killed a Jew as a Jew. They didn't care. They're killing them all, whether they're young or old or whatever. So that pretty much cut the tie to Europe and, and eliminated practically, for all intents and purposes, European Jewry. It was gone. You know, you kill six million of, of the eight and a half million who lived in Eastern Europe, and the rest of that, that some of them they leave, they go come to the states, Latin America, wherever they could go after the war, Israel or whatever, and you have small numbers, you know, living in Austria, living in Germany, living in Hungary. I mean, it's not what it was. Six hundred thousand Jews in nineteen, you know, thirty-five in Hungary, down to about what fifty thousand now of whatever was left. So uh, things do change, and you know the world goes on. The situation is different, and uh, and criminal activity on the part of Jews is certainly different. So you know times have changed. That doesn't mean Jews are not involved. There are Israelis who are involved in things in Europe and in the United States, and there's Russian Jews who are involved in things and stuff. But it's not the dominance that existed during Prohibition in the United States in terms of literally controlling, you know the crime in various cities in the United States that doesn't exist anymore by one ethnic group. Now, is it true that in 1886, in the beginning, Jews occupied 10% of the New York population? In certain areas, yes, yeah. And actually, uh, later on, the uh, 25% of New York's population was Jewish at some point. And then uh, actually 40% of the Jews in the United States in 1940 lived in New York, New York City. Uh, so they were, yeah, the Jews were very, they still are a big presence. They don't have that. I don't know if they make up 20% in New York. Yeah, they probably do. They still do. There's over a million in New York City. So I don't you know, follow the numbers anymore. But there's a demographic problem in the Jewish community in the U.S. I mean, they're just not having babies. I mean, they're having less than two children per family, so the numbers are going down. So, But yes, what, was there a question that you wanted yeah. to when you looked at those figures, what percentage were involved in the mob? Was it 4%? Or? Oh, it was way back when, in the 19th century, small numbers. It was a different community. It was a much different community in smaller numbers. Um, and so it was, it, was, it was totally different. There were Jewish criminals here and there, pickpockets and con men. 
Uh, once in a while, there'd be a you know Jewish you know guy involved in a killing, but basically it was pickpockets and, and confidence men and fence men, fences, you know, getting stolen goods and things like that. What's a confidence man? You know, comes over and says, "Listen, uh, you know, I found a wallet. You know, uh, and uh, you know, can you can you hang on to it for me? I'll, I'll be back." And it's got you know, but I, you know, it's got two hundred dollars. And he pulls out a few bills in it or something like that. And he says, "Hang on to it. I'm just going to go away and and and, uh, and and go to the bank and something. I'll come back and I'll take it from you. But you can use this as surety." And the guy says, "Sure, sure, sure." So he says, "But you know, I don't. I I, I just met you. I don't know you. Give me fifty dollars and you hang on to it. I'm just throwing this out. You know, and hold on to this wallet." And the guy holds on to the wallet, gives him fifty dollars as uh, you know, as good faith, and the guy disappears and he opens the wallet and it's got twenty dollars in there or something like that, you know. So I mean there are ways of uh, you know using paper and there's a five dollar bill on one end and a bunch of stack of papers in the wallet and another five on the other end and you say, look, there's all these fives and tens and all this kind of stuff. So confidence is to, you know, convince someone or con someone. Um to, to do something, and, and it still goes on. You know, you read about it all the time, elderly women, men proposing marriage and all this stuff, and, and all kinds of things, and borrowing money. Oh, he needs money. He's getting divorced, and to settle it, he needs some money, and he borrows money from this elderly woman, and she's madly in love with him, and will give him $10,000 to settle the divorce so that they can get married and live happily ever after, and he disappears. You know, that's a confidence man, where he uh, takes advantage of a situation, and you fall for his... Uh, line and so you have it in a lot of areas you know and all kinds of things so they did that and also uh, you know pickpockets crowded new york is crowded and you know boston was crowded and, and you get into a subway or you get into the streetcar or something you brush up against someone they were very good you know you, you feel for the wallet or you see the bump in the in the in the uh, coat or in the pants and you slip it out and stuff like they don't feel because people are banging into each other on subways and streetcars and and things like that, and then uh, or in crowded streets, or in a store, or, or maybe in an elevator. If they had an elevator, and you walk out and you find out your wallet's gone, so they did that, and also uh, robbery periodically, kinds of things like that. Why did Thomas Burns write the book "American Leading Professional Criminals," and oh, why did you mention it? Oh, professional criminals. Yeah, well, because he was a policeman. He had been an officer in the police department. And uh, those things sold. People are always fast. You know, why are people fascinated by gangster movies? How can they still make gangster? There's something about it that just seems fascinating to read about men who have their own laws and their own rules and their own, it's like politicians, right? And their own regulations and, and do what they want and everything else. I mean, they get caught. That's part of it. There's always a moral to the story. But, uh, you know, a lot of these former detectives, uh, you know, are involved in, in uh, arresting criminals and involved in, uh, uh, with, with the underworld as, as policemen. And after 30 or 40 years, uh, they write a book and the book sells and so they make money. Why would they do it? The profit motive as well. I mean, why would anybody write a book? Right, but why did that book have anything to do with Jewish mobsters? Well, because he mentions, um, you know, I used it uh, in the early period when I was looking for things about Jews because he does uh, give names, you know, uh, of, of various Jewish uh, criminals that he had dealt with and encountered. And if you, you look, I mean, when I, I have a copy of the book here in my study, but if you look at it, it gives, you know, a description of the person. It's like an FBI file, you know, the height, the weight, the eye color, what they did, the kinds of criminal activity, their nicknames and all this kind of stuff. And he did that not just for, it was just, you know, many criminals. And here and there, there were these Jewish confidence men. Many of them have red hair, which goes along with the anti-Semitic notion that the Jews as the Antichrist and, and agents of Satan were redheaded. 
you know, the devil is supposed to have red hair. Uh, and so they, you know, red-headed Jew, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah, when he published the book, it wasn't as uh, an anti-Semitic tract against Jews. He was just writing about, it's a thick book uh, with their pictures and, and, and biographies and, and stories about them. And, and, uh, and it was, uh, people bought it because it was a good read, and they reprinted it a number of times, and in recent times as well. It's become kind of a, oh, I don't want to say a textbook, but one of the, the books written about 19th century criminality in New York. Uh, and so well, he made some money from it, and then he got on the lecture circuit. Isn't that what academics and others do? <laughs> you write, come on, let's be honest. You, you write a book, and then if it's uh, if it's a hit in any way, you know, you're invited, and you make fifty, sixty thousand dollars in a lecture. It should only happen to me, you know. Never does, never will. But uh, and then you get on the lecture circuit, and make money that way, and they buy your book, and you have book signings and all this kind of stuff at Barnes and Noble. Exactly. Borders no. You know, Borders no longer exists, I guess, but Barnes and Noble and other places, and it's fun, and you get to meet people. And I once gave a talk at the Barnes and Noble, which is closed now, and near Lincoln Center in New York, and the place was filled with people. And it was with about this book, and many of them came not to hear me talk about the book or anything, but to ask me if I heard about their relative so and so and so and so. And I mean, it was it was the funniest thing where people would say, "Did you ever hear such and such? He was my cousin, and this one here was my grandfather. How can I find information?" You know, they came to ask me, you know, to help them find out about relatives that they heard about. You know, usually they're third generation who want to know about these people and they can't find any information. I still get emails from so many people asking me where can they find information about an uncle and where can they find information about the, a cousin or what about if I heard of their grandfather who was arrested in Boston. And blah, 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 blah. So you get that as well. So it's still a fascinating topic for many, many people. Are you able to help these people? Sometimes, yeah. I mean, I don't have information on everyone, but I can direct them to sources. They don't know where to go. But if, if you're dealing with the FBI, it's going to be years. Right. In the old days, it would say 30 years ago, you could get information pretty quickly. And in, in recent times, you have to wait sometimes seven and eight years. And so you can expect a long, long wait. You had mentioned several times that a lot of these Jewish mobsters would sue the press. What was that about? Oh, well, uh, Jake Guzik was classic. Um, he would keep suing the newspapers, and they'd write articles about him. Most of them were true. And so he'd sue them. And his friends, Jake Lizick was an interesting character. He uh, came out of his mother and father owned houses of prostitution, and she had once, his mother had once been a prostitute herself. And uh, the, he was the treasurer of the Capone organization. And when he went to jail for income tax evasion, uh, he, had, he took an IQ test. Now, he made a lot of money for Capone, and you know what he got on his IQ test? 85, which is like moron. At any rate, I laughed when I read that because I had the file and all this stuff about him. You know, he probably fooled around, you know, didn't want to show he was brighter, but a super bright guy. And actually, Al Capone said, uh, when he was in jail, he says, my best friend is Jake. And of all his friends, the Italians and others, the one who worried about his family, made sure they had money, made sure that his kids were in school and all this, was Jake Guzik. And so he, he called Jake, you know, my best friend and everything else. And he was, well, Guzik kept suing the newspapers. And they'd say, Jake, you're not going to win. It's ridiculous. You're not going to win. Why are you suing him? He said, look, I pay these judges a lot of money. I want to make some use out of them. So, I mean, that was it. I mean, the judges were on the take. So he would sue them. He would lose. But uh, his joke was, or his thought was, that, look, I'm paying these guys money, these judges. They're on the take. And then he even once described how it is when a judge is just starting out, it'll cost you $20. 
And then as he works along, he's getting a little heavier, so you got to pay him a little more. By the time he reaches the Supreme Court of the state, you got to pay him a lot more because he's big and fat and heavy and all this kind of stuff. So, you you know, he weighs more and he needs more money, etc. <laughs> yeah, so, uh, you know, a lot of them kept suing newspapers, but it didn't help, really, because the press, you know, had information and sources and things like that, and... Uh, you know, they had police records and files, and they interviewed policemen, but a lot of them uh, sued them anyway to protect their good name. Not many did. The smart ones tried to stay out of the press as much as they could because, again, it would hum- humiliate and embarrass the family. One of my uh, stories in the book, which is a true story about a, a, a man by the name of, um, what the heck was his name? Oh, he killed, uh, he was one of the killers of Dutch Schultz, Mendy Weiss. And uh, he um, uh, he was arrested. He wouldn't talk. He was tough. Uh, I, I don't think it was Mendy. It was someone. I just can't think of his name offhand right now. But at any rate, uh, the police were interrogating him, and he was tough. He's really tough. Uh, his one of his nicknames was the Bug. Bug was too in in American English. Bug is could be you know tough as a cockroach. Bug, or bugs means nuts. And with regard to Ben Siegel, Bugsy, was because he was nuts. Not, he was also tough, but he was nuts. At any rate, uh, the, they interviewed him, and he wouldn't talk. And so the interview interrogators of the police department said, okay, we're going to bring in your family to testify to your good character. And he said, don't do it. I'll tell you what you want to know. Don't humiliate me in front of my family. And this is, you know, written down. It's in part of the protocols of the interrogation. And... Uh, he told them what he wanted, what they wanted to know, because uh, he didn't want his family brought in. And his comment was, "Do not humiliate me. Do not shame me in front of my family." In other words, they knew that what they were doing was not an honorable profession. It was not honorable in the community, although the community did utilize them against the Nazi Bund, Meyer Lansky, and others fight against the Nazis in the 30s, late 30s. Uh, but they knew that what they did was not honorable. It was not respected. It was not something that, quote-unquote, nice Jewish boys did. It's not something that brought uh, honor and respectability to their families. And so uh, they tried as much as possible to keep them out of it. And this person, I can't think of his name. Uh, It's not Mendy Weiss. It's another one. Oh, can't think of his name. But at any rate, at the court case, he goes up to his, his, one of his relatives and said to keep his brother out of it. And he said to his brother that before he left, he says, do whatever you have to do to earn an honest living. If you have to make five cents, you make five cents, but don't get into the rackets. Don't be a wise guy. Don't get involved. Here's a man who made his living killing. And he goes to jail, and he comes out of jail after 30 years in prison, and he becomes a tie salesman. And he spent the rest of his life, uh, you know, selling ties and stuff, and he was not involved anymore. Now, is it true that typically, Robert, when the police would ask them about who else is doing this, they would never rat on each other? No, no. They had kind of a code. Talk about that. They would not. Talk yeah, about well, that. Well, you know, they, they, there was a code where you didn't, you did not turn in your friends. You know, I mean, it was just like, because if you did, then, then they would, and there's no end to it. Yeah, they they uh, they didn't. Even, even uh, uh, what do you call Arnold Rothstein, who really was not a gangster, he controlled mobs. He was a gambler, and he became famous in American history in The Great Gatsby, Meyer Wolfsheim, and that story. And in Guys and Dolls, he's Nathan Detroit and all this stuff. Uh, he supposedly, uh, allegedly fixed the 1919 World Series between the Chicago White Sox and Cincinnati Reds. Chicago was supposed to win. He bet on Cincinnati, and lo and behold, Cincinnati won. He made a lot of money. 
um, he he was shot at a card game, and he knew who did it. And when the police came, they asked him. He was not yet dead, and he could talk. I mean, he died later. And they said, you know, tell us who did it. He said, don't worry, I'll handle it. And that's, you know, in other words, tell them for crying out loud. They, you just got shot by someone. Tell them. He wouldn't tell them. I'll take care of it. I'll handle it. And he never did. Um, one of the newspapers reporters said that he said, no, you're mutter. You know, this kind of nonsense. You know, New York, New Yorkese or something like that. Yeah, they, uh, they felt that, uh, you know, they would take care of it themselves. They would uh, within, keep it within the, the business and don't let it outside. And, and they, you know, they didn't. And they also kept their families out of it. Uh, there was a, a, a gangster in, in uh, St. Paul, Minnesota, ran the city. And he was kidnapped and held for ransom. It started out $50,000. Eventually, they, they lowered it to 5000 They got the 5000 And then everybody who was involved in the, in the kidnapping of him ended up dead with bullets in their head. Because he had, went after him. And then his daughter was kidnapped. And that's a rarity for those days. I mean, that's not today. It's then. They didn't, they didn't bother the families. Well, his daughter was kidnapped. And he paid the ransom. And then he said he got her back. He said, that's it. I'm out of it. He says, I don't mind what they do to me, but when they start you know, attacking my family and harming my family, then that's it. And he got out of it and opened, um, he enjoyed sports very much. He opened a bunch of sporting goods stores, made more money doing that legitimately than he had made as a gangster during the bootlegging period. Interesting. <laughs> and he, but he got out of it because, uh, you know, they, they, they did something to his family. I mean, she, she wasn't hurt or anything. They just wanted money. But he said, that's it, I'm out of it. He just left it. He just walked away from you know, the rackets, and let others take it over. So there was kind of a code. You know, I won't say they were all honorable men, but basically there was a certain kind of code. If someone once said to me, he says, look, I tried to make a living legitimately. I don't know how to do it. So I've always lost money legitimately. He says, I know how to manipulate or maneuver in the underworld. He said, we have our laws and regulations and sit-downs and this and that and the other. He says, I, I can make money that way. He was involved in international gambling stuff, illegal gambling here and there. Um, but so, so yeah, they, uh, that's, that's part of it. They just, they had the code. Today, I don't know. I mean, we, we hear about these things, you know, they, they kill the whole family just to get at the one, the one man who is the, the, the one they're after. They'll kill everybody, the wife, the children, everything. Now you're talking about general mafia or are you talking about Jewish mafia in this last example? No, no, no. There's no, there's no real Jewish mafia as such anymore. There are Russians who are involved. Right. I was going to say to you that years ago I was planning a trip to Russia and someone pulled me aside and said, let me explain something to you. You can never do business in Russia unless you're going to work through the mafia there. Because there's a lot of corruption. Yeah. Yeah. Police are involved, this, that, and the other government and all this. Uh, yeah, it was I mean, scary, and they said they'll kill everybody, your family, your friends, the people. Oh, yeah, yeah, of course, yeah, of course, of course. So do they do in Mexico. I mean, they kill innocent people, slaughtering them, you know. I mean, and Jews were involved in some of the nonsense. I mean, I don't want to say nonsense, but there was a restaurant in Detroit owned by a Jew, Boleski's Delicatessen, <clears throat> and there was a mobster sitting there from the Purple Gang, and uh, some Jewish hitmen from New York came. They were hired to take care of them, and they started shooting up the place, and they killed some innocent people who were sitting there just eating to get this guy, and that's a rarity. You know, you, know, you wait till he leaves, and then you get him. I asked someone about that who had been, I don't want to say involved, I don't even want to talk about that, but I asked someone that I had spoken to, interviewed about this incident. It was back in the 30s, and his comment was, <laughs> I got him on tape, well, they shouldn't have been there. I mean, in other words, you're talking about the innocent diners. 
They shouldn't have been there, which is a stupid idea. Anyway, they shouldn't have. They're eating. They don't know who the heck is sitting near them. You know, and so, uh, but basically, no, you, 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 you just went after that person. You didn't hurt the family. Because if you start with that, then no one's safe. Your family's not safe. They all had children. They were married. You know, they all had families. And you don't want your family harmed. You try to keep them out of everything. And then if you start harming someone else's family, well, guess what's going to happen to you? Tit for tat, you know. So they didn't. But that's then. This is, this is back in the 20s and 30s, maybe 40s. Now it's, it's another world now, you know. And violence is just, you know, as you can read it in the paper every day. I mean, it's crazy. I don't read the paper. I no well, longer you... read the paper because I know that <laughs> I mean, the paper is not news. It's not oh, it's, actually it's, yeah, news. sensationalism, and yeah. I know they try and sell the news. I mean, I, I'm from Detroit, so I keep I follow the Detroit Tigers, but they lose it, ruins my day. So I don't want to look at the, you know, in the morning to look Sports at the internet. It's a different issue. Let's yeah. talk about the anomaly of no killing on the Sabbath. Talk about that. Well, the only one I came across was Sam Red Levine, who Lucky Luciano mem- mentions in his memoirs. I mean, it was, he was he was thinking that there would be a book about him, maybe a movie, and then he gets a heart attack at the airport and dies. But anyway, he said that he mentioned that he says he was a strange guy. He was a, he was one of my best shooters. He was a contract killer. Sam Red Levine from Toledo, Ohio, Orthodox Jew. Under his hat, he wore a skull cap. And Luciano said, you know, he said that. The man, you know, went to synagogue regularly, and he prayed every day, he put on, you know, his prayer shawl and this and that. And he said, strange guy, strange guy. He says, you know, he refused to take a contract to kill from Friday afternoon until Saturday night. But if he had no choice and had to do the job on Saturday, then first he would say his prayers, and then he would go out and do the job. So never on Saturday with Sam Red Levine. The others... The others were not religious, although many of them did go to synagogue. Many of them uh, were members of congregations, and their parents went to the congregation. They would go on <clears throat> Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, and Rosh Hashanah, the New Year's, and stuff like that. I often wonder what they prayed about. That's before. a great question. That would have been a great question to ask. We have it here in Israel, too. We have a former president who was sentenced to seven years. He's still running around, I mean, seven years in jail for rape. And then uh, he goes to synagogue, and he refused to shake hands with a reform rabbi. He says, because I'm traditional, we don't believe reform is, you know, kosher, legitimate, and all that. Right. So what does he pray about in the synagogue? What is, we have people from the religious party who've been in jail for bribery and fraud, breach of trust, and all kinds of stuff. And so what do they pray about? And what about the Ten Commandments? It's a very simple thing. Do not steal. Do not lie. <laughs> I mean, what? You know, I wonder, I said, what do these people pray about when they go to synagogue? For God's sakes, what are they doing? <laughs> what is this about? Well, you know, and they went to synagogue. You know, I mean, there's one story, the Purple Gang, on a, on a day of atonement, Yom Kippur, or the congregation, B'nai David, one of the officers was a uh, father or uncle of the members, and uh, the uh, uh, FBI and others knew that they were going to synagogue, and they so they dressed up as Hasidic Jews, which there weren't that many then. It was before the Holocaust, so there weren't that many in the United States. And Hasidic Jews came over, and you know those who survived after the war. At any rate, they go to B'nai David Synagogue in Detroit, dressed as uh, religious Jews, Orthodox Jews, and they sit in the back, and uh, nobody paid attention to them, <clears throat> okay, because they blended in. But then during the intermission, you know, on the uh, Yom Kippur, there's a big intermission. 
uh, in the afternoon, and they went out onto the uh, balcony, well, not the balcony, but uh, they went outside of the synagogue and lit up cigarettes and smoked. Well, there you go. Their cover was blown. What Jew is going to be smoking on Yom Kippur if he's going to synagogue? I mean, you just don't do it. The Sabbath is Sabbath, the whole, you know, it's the holiest day of the year, et cetera, et cetera. You don't smoke on that day. So, <laughs> so, and they went, not knowing that you don't, you know, they didn't know anything about the Jewish tradition, custom, you know, and all this stuff, so... So you, they, they, yeah, they did go to synagogue. He once gave a, a talk in a conference in France about it. Uh, you know, the, I call the mobsters of the book, those who were religious. For example, Longies Wilman, controlled New Jersey, Abner's Wilman. Uh, and I have this on tape where uh, um, a good friend of his died, and he did not go into the funeral home. And the son of this, his friend came outside, and he said, Longy. He said, they called him Longy because he was tall, and it was a translation from the Yiddish of li their Langer, the long one, the tall one. At any rate, Longy, and that was his nickname, it's even in the FBI files, Abner Longy's Wilman. Uh, he came out and he said, look, my father loved you, you were good friends, why, I mean, why haven't you gone into the funeral home? Now, this is this gangster who used violence and everything else, and he said, I can't go in. He said, why? He said, I'm a Kohen. Now, a Kohen, for those who don't know, is not allowed to go into to a cemetery, not allowed to go into, uh, uh, you know, in a, a, a funeral home, because that's the priestly class of the Jews. So here's a man who won't go in there because he's a Kohen or descendant from the priestly class, but on the other hand, in his business, uses tremendous violence and all this kind of stuff. Go figure it out. I, so I talked about it. I said they, they compare, 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 compartmentalize their lives yeah yes, yes. i said what they did for their business is one thing but what they did in their family and if that's something else and they were very good at that separating the two totally it's which i find very difficult to do but they did it you know they did it geffen publications published your book to right. what extent is your publisher extremely brave to have done this, taken on this project? Well, with you know, you? Um, they, uh, it's a story, and I, I, you know, I mean, I had an agent in New York, uh, and uh, she had it, and then when I was in Washington many years ago, and I got a message where I was staying, and, and the agent said, I have good news for you, and I said, oh, oh. Good news. Wow. You know, one of the big publishers, Simon and Schuster, something's going to publish the book, blah, 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 blah. And so I said, you know, instead of calling her now, I'll go to the airport, I'll check in, I'll relax, I'll get a cup of tea, and then I'll call. And I did. And she said, well, I had good news for you about an hour and a half ago, but it changed. Uh, they were going to publish it, and then they had an editorial meeting. They said, well, books about Jewish gangsters don't sell. We need to sell at least 10,000 copies. We don't think we'll do it. So they decided not to publish it. And so I came back to Israel, and Geffen Publishing at the time, just starting out, it was a small operation. Uh, they've done a lot of things since then and become much bigger in things and published some very good things uh, in the Jewish world. And um, I, I was very, you know, I won't say despondent, but really, and they had been after me, we'll publish it, we'll do it, anything you want, because they knew it, it would sell because it was such a unique topic at the time. Now I'm talking about 1993 when the first issue of it came out. It's since been reprinted and I redid it, corrected errors, added stories, eliminated certain things that I found to be untrue afterward. The sources were not great and so I, I redid certain things. So it was republished in a, in a much nicer format, more attractive and also more accurate and also footnoted uh, in 2000. But at any rate, they knew they were 
you know, they knew that a book like this would sell because it was so unique. There wasn't really anything like it. Who interviewed Jewish gangsters? The only one who wrote about it. And so uh, when I came back to Israel, I called them up. I said, you interested? Yeah, we'll do it. I said, all right, I, I gave them certain instructions. Big print. So my stepfather, who you know, needed to read big print, could read it. I said it had to have pictures and this and that and the other. And they said, whatever you want, we'll do. And they did whatever I asked for. It sounds like you got to pick your title, too. Yes, and the title, yeah. I mean, I had the but he was good to his mother, but I couldn't think of what else to go beyond it. And one of the people working there, she said, the lives and crimes of Jewish gangsters. I said, that's great. You thought about it. You know, I had what my mother said, but not, you know, on the other side of the colon. So they, they did that. And then the second book is a much nicer, much nicer job because, you know, I corrected it and looked at it again. And over time, I could see what people said. Oh, you, why is this in there and this? But, I, you know, to be honest, I, I, not that I suffered from it, but it, 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 in Israel, it was not an acceptable field academically. And being in the Department of Jewish History, it hurt me in, in a number of ways. It hurt me not physically or emotionally or anything, but in terms of academically, because it was not seen as a proper topic, especially from someone in the Jewish Department, Department of Jewish History, writing about criminals, Jewish criminals. I mean, it was, I mean colleagues loved it. But the powers that be thought that this was, you know, not something, you, you know, why, why, you know, why don't you write about Zionist heroes and why don't you write about <laughs> the great Jews, the good Jews, this, that, and the other. I always wrote about history from the bottom up. The first things I ever wrote when I wrote about the Jews of Detroit, I, I wrote about the ghetto, I mean, the Jewish ghetto and what their life was like. To me, that was interesting. What the average person, the common person you know, the ones who came as immigrants and struggled, and then their kids did this, that, and you know. To me, that was interesting. I, I, interesting. I guess it's because I was raised by grandparents who had been immigrants from Russia, who came to America in 1909, and I loved them, and they really loved me. They treated me, you know, like, you know, you know how grandparents are with grandchildren. I mean, I could do no wrong. I mean, it was, and they were elderly already when my biological father had died, and so they kind of, we all lived together, my mom, my grandparents, and me. She went to work, and they literally raised me. And so, in a sense, I grew up with my mother tongue was Yiddish, because they spoke Yiddish at home. And when they didn't want me to understand, they spoke Russian. I didn't. So, and when I spoke English, my mother told me I would sound something like this when I wanted to play with someone. I would say, "Boy, yes, you want to play with me?" You know, I spoke like <laughs> some immigrant that just got off the boat. I had this accent, and so, I mean, they influenced me in many ways, and I loved them. And so, when I I wrote the book, I wrote about their generation in America the Eastern European Jewish, and, and so um, many of the things I wrote about and I have written about are not about the great leaders and, and things like that, but about the, you know, the underside of Jewish history. In other words, not always crime, but the other side, which is much, was much, became much more popular some years ago in social history and things. And so I did that, and, and gangsterism was something I came across, like I said, it, and I always liked gangster movies and things, and so I thought, why not? Why not? And very little had been done. Practically nothing had been done. Is your book censored? No, no, nothing was censored. Except the first volume, the first book, I came across material that showed that there were Jewish gangsters who tried to sell warplanes to Egypt during the Arab-Israeli War in 1948. And I had that story in there, and I had good evidence for it, newspapers and all kinds of other stuff. Articles, they were arrested, they were tried, convicted. And the publisher said, look, let's leave them with a good feeling, don't publish it. Okay. 
So I left it out of the first edition. But in the, the last edition, which is the one that's available, you know, Barnes & Noble. The one that I read? Amazon.com. Yeah, the one you read with the black cover. Yep. Yeah, okay. It's got the little pistol point. Yes, yes. <laughs> yes, okay. Well, if you look at the end of it, there's a story about that, that uh, these, these Jewish mobsters from Detroit and some other, a few other places uh, bought planes, war planes, World, World War II is over, and tried to sell them to Egypt. They got caught. Didn't have a license to export, you know, this kind of stuff. And it was a whole thing that the planes would be flown from the United States thing with British pilots when they landed in London, and Egyptian pilots would take over and fly it to Egypt. They were caught. And so the comment that I made in this when I read it, it's, it's you know, it's in the newspapers, it's there, you know, the whole business of trial and all that, it's, it's available to see that for some Jews, uh, ethnic loyalty, money, was more important than any kind of ethnic loyalty. And that was it, money. It was money. And I interviewed a number of old-time Jewish newspapers who were newspapermen who are deceased now, who had been, in, one especially who had been involved as a tall blonde, and he, he joined the Nazi Bund in Chicago and uh, would go to their meetings. He was a tall blonde guy, didn't look Jewish at all. And then they ended up publishing Jewish newspapers on the West Coast. He was a wonderful guy. And uh, we spent a day together because wherever he went, I went with him. I sat in his car, and he went shopping. He went to the bank, you know. I, and I was interviewing him while we're in between his shopping things. He was a lovely guy. And I asked him how, you know, how why did these people get involved? And think he said it was just money, just money. Uh, it was that was it. And I asked him about Mickey Cohen and others because he knew them. He had been a crime reporter also in Chicago in the 30s and got involved and he said yeah I would go to these Nazi Bund meetings and then I would tell the you know the gangsters where they were meeting and they'd go there and they'd beat them up. <laughs> now you're talking about something like the silver shirt meeting share about that. Silver shirt meetings and yeah they had uh, you know they there was the silver shirts and the Bund there was over 100 anti-semitic organizations in the states and you had this uh, William Dudley Pelly and the silver shirts and all this kind of stuff and they uh, you know called themselves the American Fuhrer and all this business and uh and in Minneapolis, they were very active in, in, in areas in which you had the large German populations and things like that. Now, the Nazi Bund was in New York, but in the Midwest, the Silver Shirts were active. They were also active on the West Coast. And uh, in Minneapolis, Minnesota, Davy, uh, Davy Berman was involved in criminal activity, later went to Las Vegas and ended up managing hotels and all this kind of stuff. He was a tough guy. came from the Midwest and... Uh, couldn't he hated these guys and so he they were they knew about these Nazi Bund meetings. The police would inform them, or not the Bund, but the Silver Shirts, and he gathered his his friends together and they would break up the meetings and they would beat these men to a pulp. I mean they knew how to fight. They would use, you know, brass knuckles, blackjacks, everything else. And then they also came armed. And so they would take militant action against them. The same thing there was action taken against the Nazi Bund. But you know, the police you have a right to rally in the United States. You have a right to demonstrate. You have a right freedom of speech. And so these gangsters who took violent actions against, they were arrested. You know, you can't, you know, if a person's holding a rally, uh, you know, like they had in New York, if you look at the movies of it, and I have movies of this ra these rallies that they had with the Nazi salute, and they have uh, Nazi flags right next to flags of uh, George Washington and all this kind of stuff, and they're singing Nazi songs. And, well, you know, this is the 1930s, and uh, they're German-Americans or whatever they are. They have a right to rally, and there's no war yet. If you want to sing songs to Mussolini or to Hitler, you can do that. Well, you've got these meetings 
broken up by Jewish gangsters, hey, it's the Constitution of the United States, freedom of speech. You don't like what they're saying, so you hold your rally, you know. And so you have those kinds of things. And the gangsters couldn't take this stuff. They felt that the Jews should be more militant. They didn't, and the the average Jews were afraid of taking action. They were afraid of causing anti-Semitism and this and and uh, the the story that I write about and I wrote and written about others in the book is Meyer Lansky. And he told me it, and I checked, corroborated it, and everything else was in the newspapers and everything. Everything he told me was true about this. That he was approached by a former judge, a Jewish judge. I mean, he was a judge. I'm having to be Jewish, who told him that. Uh, he felt that Jews should be a little more militant and they're dealing with the Bundists, the Nazi Bundists. And so Lansky said to me, told me, he told me the story, and I listened, and uh, and he said that, uh, he said to him the condition was he would do it, but that when he finished taking care of these people, that the new Jewish newspapers would not write about him in a derogatory way, call him a gangster, etc., 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 you know, and he was promised by the judge that, that yes, that would be fine. And he had the judge ask him if he needed any monetary help or anything. No, 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 we'll take care of it. And he did. Grounded up uh, Jewish mobsters and even some non-Jews that wanted to get involved in beating him up. And they broke up Nazi Bund rallies. Uh, he wanted to kill him, and and uh, uh, you know, and uh, the judge said, no, 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 no killing. And so he said, you know, all right, we won't. We won't ice them. We'll only marinate them, you know. <laughs> so there were no no killings, but arms were broken, legs were broken, skulls were cracked, and uh, then the uh, the Nazi Bundes demanded protection from the Jewish gangsters. And so Fiorello LaGuardia was mayor of New York at the time, and he gave them protection. His father was Italian, mother was Jewish. He spoke Italian and Yiddish. So who did he send to protect these uh, Nazi Bundes from the Jewish gangsters? Black and Jewish policemen to you know protect them from. Jewish monsters. Well, the Yiddish press uh, talked about it. These are not like us. They are hoodlums. They're gangsters. The Jewish community doesn't do things. Again, the fear, the fear of causing anti-Semitism, the fear of, you know, and so Lansky was, when he told me about it, he started getting angry, you know, because he remembered how it was. He said, you know, I, they told me that they didn't, he said, and Rabbi Stephen Wise, you know, went out and he said, it's not us, it's these hoodlums, these Jewish gangs. So no one had ever called me a gangster before until they called me, which wasn't exactly true. But okay, I'm not going to argue with this man. He's treating me to lunch. <laughs> and who knows, you know. <laughs> so at any rate, yeah, they, <laughs> be nice, you know. Exactly. Be nice to my Olansky. <laughs> anyway, um, so... Uh, you know, you have uh, you had that, and they did act. They did take actions. In fact, one of the groups I wrote about were in Newark, New Jersey, and uh, one of the men who was involved was a man named Max Hinkus, and his name comes across in the FBI files as well. He was a, uh, a quote unquote lieutenant in the Longies Wilman gang, uh, and I interviewed him. And he is his nickname was Putty because when he was little, he liked pudding. And he couldn't pronounce it. He would say, Putty, I want Putty, Putty, you know. And so he got the nickname Putty. Max Putty Hinkus. Even the FBI put his nickname in, in the file. Uh, that uh, Max Putty Hinkus, lieutenant in the, the Zwillman syndicate and all this stuff. Anyway, he and, and others, uh, including a Jewish prize fighter, Nat Arno was his name, rounded up tough Jews. And they were tough Jews in that generation. They are physical. Not talking about, uh, you know, today, you know, all this stuff. But they were tough guys. And they broke up rallies. They beat their brains out. I mean, uh, one of the incidents, they threw stink bombs into the, where the meeting was. And when the, the Nazis came running out, the Jews were lined up on both sides of the sidewalk with iron bars and baseball bats, and they were aiming for their heads. And they just clobbered these guys. 
Can you imagine that? I mean, what was going on? Well, the police had to do something. Actually, the police told them about the meetings. Uh, and anyway, I wrote about it, and not many people knew about it. And the man had cancer. Pudi Hinkas had cancer. And they threw a party for him, a dinner to raise money. And I got an invitation from the synagogue that was holding it from the rabbi a pers- and a personal letter saying, you know, thanks to you, we learned about you know, through the activities of Max Hinkus at a time when, you know, anti-Semitism was rife and the Nazis were running around, blah, 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 blah. Still had a letter that he wrote thanking me for bringing, uh, uh, bringing it to their attention that this man had acted uh, to protect the Jewish community from the Nazis, you know, and things like this. So uh, a lot of things were unknown that I uncovered, not that I'm a genius or anything, but sometimes when you do research, you find things that people don't know about. Maybe you read about the killings and the beatings and all this other stuff, uh, but then sometimes there's another side to the character uh, of these people. So, you know, and, and I tried to write about that as well. They may have been bad, but maybe as this uh, former uh, reporter and uh, newspaper owner told me, this Jewish man in California, he said he believed that in every Jew, there's a, even the gangsters, there's the Yiddish expression, Tintala Yid, like a, a spark of Jewishness, a little spark of, of Yiddishkeit uh, that they can't eliminate, you know, and uh, or, or or psychologically they can't eliminate, or they have it, and this feeling for their people in one way, shape, or form. That doesn't mean they didn't start their careers by not beating up Jews and robbing from Jewish pushcarts in the neighborhood and stuff like that, but as they got older, some of them, you know, mended their ways with regard to the community or tried to clean up their act, as it were. Robert, have you ever thought of releasing your verbal interviews with some of the people? I thought about it. I don't know, you know, I mean, I don't know how to do it in a way. I mean, I've got these tapes, and uh, I should go through them again. I thought of utilizing them, but, you know, if I release them, I don't know. I, I How will they be used? Will they be used? I don't know. You know, I'd have to, I'd have to make sure that... Uh, I mean, it could be fun listening to them as you're driving your car, you know, and stuff like that. Well, yeah. in a book, you've obviously brought excerpts of things, but we miss contextual overlay and reading between the lines and the texture of the communication between them and you. And there's a lot in the verbal that you won't right, get in right. the reading because in the reading, you're telling the story about it. It's referential. And not to cause any trouble or anything, I think that if there are one or two that are really remarkable, the sound is good, and it's insightful, obviously you have permission to do this interview and to use it to write your book. I don't know if you have permission to actually release the Oh, yeah, I can do whatever I want with it. Okay. I think that people would be very interested to hear from their mouths. There's something about... And when they speak, this background, they're yeah. sitting on this history. I'd have to figure out who, how would be the best way to go about this. And well, we can talk about that later. <laughs> we can talk about, you know, my son makes movies. He's in New York. Maybe I'll ask him, say, hey, Tan, what do you want to do? As it is, I mean, I don't know. But uh, it's a thought. Is there anything else you'd like to say, Robert? People uh, should buy the book. They'll get a kick out of it. The only thing I should say, I always tell friends that I give it to, sign copy, read it in the bathroom. Number one, you'll finish it. And number two, I mean, it'll it'll be fun. It's a fun thing. So it's something that's not so serious that, you know, you want to read it in a serious setting. But it it is, it's a lot of fun. I mean, a lot of fun because it's interesting, it's factual, and you, you've read part of it. And, I read the whole book. you heard me talk. I oh, read the whole book. So you know that there's there's humor in it and stuff. And Very much so. Interesting. 
I, I think that you I probably found it interesting in, in one way, shape, or form, I don't imagine. I found it very interesting and also parts of it very shocking. Both. Yeah, well, because you didn't know about it. No. You know, yeah, <laughs> I know. I know a lot of people said, I didn't know that. I said, well, why would you know that? I mean, I dug this stuff up. Most people didn't know it. And then they, you know, like one of the interviews I gave, they started talking about uh, that this particular individual that I was talking to on the tape was a strike breaker. And he killed a bus driver that was taking us, you know, strikers someplace or whatever, or strike breakers or whatever it was. I can't remember exactly. And one of the people sitting at the table in the interview said, what'd you shoot him for? He said, well, he shouldn't have been driving them. The guy was an innocent man. You know, the, the thought that they shot an innocent man without blinking. Of course, there's another story that I got where he's at a prize fight, the same individual. He was tough. And he, in those days, you smoked, you know, in the, in the, you know, at, at, the, at the arenas, you smoke. This is back in the 30s or late 20s or early 30s or something. And the fellow, it was a Jewish fighter and an Italian fighter. And the fellow in front of him, sitting in front of him, was saying something like, kill the heeb, kill the sheen, kill the kike, you know, beat the... Cr-. So he taps him on the shoulder. He said, what'd you say? He says, ah, he says, that's, I don't know, you know, that Jew, kill that fucking kike or whatever it is. He said he took his cigar and he delighted in and poked it in the man's eye. And I said, oh, my gosh. He said, yeah, I ruined a perfectly good cigar. <laughs> I mean, that was such, not the, the thing that he poked it in the guy's eye and probably blinded him or whatever it was, but he ruined his cigar. These were violent men, you know. That's and, what uh, was so shocking also in the book. They were. I mean, they were violent. Uh, people say, were you scared? No. I mean, a 90-year-old or an 87 or 88-year-old is when I interviewed. They were in their late 80s already. Lord, I mean, they were reliving when I was there, they they enjoyed it as much as I did because they were reliving the memories of when they were in their 20s and 30s, when they were young and vigorous and tough and all this stuff. And when they started talking about it, literally it projected them back in time, the expressions and all this stuff. And they, and they laughed at the things and they, you know, really did that? Well, you didn't do that. Oh, yes, I did. You know, I mean, it was unbelievable. And so, you know, it was... It was like sitting amongst a bunch of elderly people who reminiscence about the good old days, and then they start laughing and reliving them. And it's uh, we all do that, I think. You know, I, you know, talk to friends about when growing up. We'll say in Detroit when I visit Detroit, which I still do, um, and we talk about the and we start laughing. Whatever happened to so? Oh yeah, remember? You know, and that's what they were doing. Only their <laughs> memories are really different than the ones I had. I mean, I had I played in sports. I was in baseball and this and that and. The, captain of the tennis team. I was an athlete and all this kind of stuff. So I have those kinds of things in terms of roughness, but I never stole, I never robbed, I didn't you know, get involved in the stuff they did. And when you listen to these men, holy mackerel, it's a whole other life. It's something so alien to me. I mean, uh, in terms of my own growing up, the kinds of things that they were doing in their 20s and 30s was certainly not what I was doing in my 20s. Oh, I was studying all the time and all this stuff, but you know, it's it's another it's another side of, of of life that I just you know was introduced to that I knew nothing about except from reading about it, maybe looking at movies and things, but you don't relate to it. And here I see these, listen to these men, these old Jewish men, and it's uh, it was an eye opener for me as well. Uh, but since then, you know, you kind of get used to it, and going through the material again and again, and writing the book, and then going through some of these things even now, uh, it's fascinating. It's fascinating. You've definitely captured a piece of history that would have been untold, I think. 
you definitely captured a whole strand of culture or subculture. If you yeah, know. well, thank you. Thank you. And, and unfortunately, uh, a lot of people still don't know about it because one of the things is that, uh, I mean, nothing against Geffen, but, you know, it's not a kind of, a, it's not a huge company like uh, Barnes and, you know, Simon and Schuster or one of these other kinds of things and the Alfred Knopf company and this stuff. They're not going to invest, you know, $100,000 to advertise the book in the New York Times and stuff. So it didn't get that kind of exposure, although I was on the radio in Cleveland and in Detroit and I gave lectures in Arizona and in Los Angeles, as a matter of fact. And Steve Allen showed up at one of my talks at breakfast there. Late Steve Allen, remember him? Yes, of course. Yeah, yeah, and he, uh, he he showed. I said, "Mr. Allen, what are you doing here?" Well, he was interested in this thing, and uh, so I sp- I've spoken in a lot of places. But on the other hand, you know, the book is still in print, as you know, and it was you know it's been around for a long time. And they keep reprinting it, but uh, it it didn't get the kind of uh, national exposure, we'll say, that some of the others. And Jews buy books, so who knows, you know? But it was fun writing. I enjoyed it. Like I say, I, it impacted also academically in terms of promotion and things because they never considered it serious. First, the issue didn't have footnotes, so I footnoted the second one, and then all of a sudden that became, then it became academic. You put a footnote in, it's academic. It's such a nonsense, you know. Uh, the writer Stephen Ambrose, who wrote Band of Brothers and all kinds of other things, uh, he's deceased now, too, uh, and he uh, he was on TV one time and gave an interview, and they asked him about the history profession. He says, you know, you can write a book that can be factual. He says, beautifully written, sell, you know, 200,000 copies. You will not get tenure, and you will not be promoted. But you can write a book with footnotes, and maybe 25 people, it will be reviewed in the academic journals, and maybe 25 people will buy the book, and a few libraries will buy it. He says, then you'll get tenure, you'll be promoted. He says, that's just the way the profession is. In other words, sometimes historians just write for each other. And, uh, you know, that's just the, the name of the game, unfortunately. But this was fun, and the people who read it enjoyed it, and so what the heck, that's that's part of it. You know, as long as they enjoy it and, and it teaches them something they didn't know before, hey, you can't ask for anything more. Well, I want to thank you for having the My courage pleasure. to do the work that you did and to bring well, it thanks. forth and to go through everything that you did. And ladies and gentlemen... We have been talking with, learning from, and listening to Robert Rockaway, the author of But He Was Good to His Mother, The Lives and Crimes of Jewish Gangsters. He's written many other books. How do people get a hold of you? Robert, R-O-B-E-R-T, and then just continue with the last name, like the beach in New York, R-O-C-K-A-W-A-Y, Robert Rockaway, at gmail.com. Very good. Thank you so much for being they on the show. They can ask me about their relatives, and I'll try and give them some tips where to look if they're <laughs> interested. So <laughs> it's perfectly okay. Thank you so much, Robert. My pleasure.